0: Hey everyone, before we get into it today, just want to give a quick shout out to this season's sponsor Rook close to a billion dollars worth of MEV has been taken out of users pockets. And that's just on Ethereum. And that number is only getting larger, unfortunately. Rook thinks that it's time for a change and they've built a solution, which is going to automatically redirect that MEV back to where it belongs into your, the user's pocket. So you're going to be hearing all about them later in the show. I'm a huge fan of this team and what they're building. So stay tuned to find out more. Welcome to the intro episode, the kickoff episode to season four. Uh, I'm very excited to be joined by Hasu. We're going to be uh, taking a journey into the dark forest and exploring MEV. Hasu, welcome to the show, man.
1: Yeah, woohoo! It's good to be back. Uh, to, to yeah, speaking about MEV and doing some podcasting, I'm very excited uh, to do this with you.
0: Yeah, me as well. Me as well. Um, so let's just get into it. And folks who have have listened to previous seasons of Bell Curve will know that the point of this episode is basically to lay out some of the ideas that we're going to be exploring in depth later in the season, and. You know, I, I, think it would be a very cool outcome if both of us, uh, you know, we're going to lay some of these things out and we're going to kind of, you know, speak through and understand what our opinions are going into the season. And I would love it if we change our mind about a couple of things, you know, after we've discussed these topics with our guests, I think that'd be a great outcome.
1: Oh yeah. Um, I, I, when we designed the guest list, um, there's a bunch of people on there who I've have, have not talked to so far. So there would be a lot of new for me in these conversations and, um, uh, Frankly, that's a that's a big reason also why I enjoy podcasting and, and why I enjoy um, doing this season on MEV, because it allows me to meet new people and get new perspectives on, on MEV, which is just a field that is constantly evolving.
0: Yeah, I agree. So I, I want to start, um, you know, maybe to introduce the first big topic that we're going to talk about, um, which is what does equitable distribution of MEV look like across the MEV value chain. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. So maybe Hasu, could I tee it up to you? And could you kind of break down this concept, right, that many people will be familiar with, but what the MEV value chain is, who are the actors? And then what do we mean when we talk about what does equitable distribution of value look like across that chain?
1: Most people know MEV as the money that miners or welders can extract, um, from reordering, inserting, uh, censoring, etc., the the list of transactions that they put into a block, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I would actually go and generalize that to say it is um, any money that or any value that a, a privileged actor can extract in a in any system as a result of their privileged position. Mm-hmm. And so, if you use that definition, then um, all of a sudden you start to see MeV everywhere for example uh, central banks you know going out of control printing money that leads to hyperinflation CC uh, <laughs> Balaji. Um, you know that's that's meV right Google cheating in their ad auction um, that's MeV there's there's just so many forms of meV everywhere and um, my bull thesis for crypto is actually that, People want crypto in order to escape MEV in the real world, mm. right? They want systems that are more fair, uh, that are more decentralized, where there are fewer privileged actors in them that can res- uh, that can extract uh, less MEV. And so, um, yeah, I think um, I-, I like this kind of this arc um, that uh, there's MEV in crypto and MEV outside of crypto, and yeah, so. Um, I think we need to make sure that the that the systems that we build in in crypto are as resilient to MeV as possible because otherwise the whole, the whole thesis doesn't work out hmm.
0: and i I think there's you know to borrow a a phrase that um, Stefan right has uh, has used is there's kind of this idea of MeV dystopia and let's say that let's go into this season assuming that MEV is an inevitable outcome when you have different systems like this. And to your point, that could be a crypto economic network. That could be a central bank. That could be Google's ad network. Let's say there will always be privileged people in these sorts of systems, and there's always going to be a way to extract value. But there is probably systems that have structures that enable better, more fair outcomes. And then there are probably more black box, opaque systems where maybe the outcomes are good. Maybe they're not so good. So maybe let's even back up for a second there. And when you're designing these systems, right? Cause Flashbots in many ways is involved in designing these economic systems. What are some of the principles that you sort of used or think about?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. What are the principles? Hmm. Um, I would say one of, the, one of the main principles in reducing MEV is the idea of competition. Because when you when you have competition, for example, uh, in the MEV supply chain, we try to have competition at, at, at as many um, layers of the stack as possible. When you have competition between uh, different block builders in order to buy a, a block from the next validator, then the result is that they start to compete on price and they start to bid up, bid up what they are willing to pay and the validator makes more money. If you go down one layer, then if you have more competition between searchers you know, for the same MeV opportunity, they start to bid up the value of that opportunity and give more money to to the builder. Uh, one layer before that, um, let's say if you have more competition between wallets or applications to minimize the amount of uh, MeV that the user exposes, then there will be less money lost. And so I think, um, competition, competition to do better, to be more innovative and to find better solutions. That's one of the main principles. Hmm. A another one would be privacy. That's very big for asset flashbots because if a transaction is private, then it's much harder to extract MEV from it because you don't know what the transaction is doing. You can't simulate it. You can't say, let me, let me front run this transaction, for example, because while the transaction is, is private, it could do like a million different things. And so whatever you do is, is purely speculative, right? Um, what else? I think giving control, uh, over the transactions to users, Mm -hmm. I think that's a big one. So a lot of. A big reason why we are talking about MEV as such a big topic is that users and wallets and applications for a very long period of time did not take control over their transactions. They have the they have the power to do it, right? They they could, for example, use uh, a Dex aggregator instead of using Uniswap, or they could use the wallet that that protects them from uh, MEV that routes their Transactions through a private channel to miners, or they could change um, their RPC endpoint in, in MetaMask to to do the same thing. Right? Um, there, it's not like options are not available, but this is a complicated topic, um, and yeah, it's just very hard for people, I think, to see the differences and see um, to, to to really compare different options and. Um, and know what even hit them. But I think one of the pernicious sides of FMEV is that it's often invisible to uh, to the eye. Right? You can look at your transaction, but even if you look at your transaction in in uh, in Etherscan, you won't necessarily see that you've gotten sandwiched, for example, because the the sandwich would be then in in different transactions that come before before and after your own transaction. Right? And so it's um it's many things. It's it's a lack of um, awareness, lack of visibility, a lack of sophistication. And yeah, so it's it's really a multi-pronged problem that we are slowly chipping
0: away at. Mm. All right. So competition, privacy, redistributing MEV to users, those are, you know, kind of philosophies and ideologies, right? So I want to kind of map that across the MEV value chain as it exists today. And my, my question to you is, so if we kind of lay out, right, there's kind of users and wallets, um, then there's searchers, builders, relays, validators. And when you're you're designing how MEV should flow through that entire value chain, those principles that you laid out, I totally agree with. My question is, what do you do when the principles that you're trying to design a system around bump up against the natural economics that organize that system? And what I mean by that is there's every incentive for actors in that value chain to uh, vertically integrate or create these little deals in between each other and consolidate so that it looks less and less like the design ideologies. How how do you you deal with that bumping up? Uh,
1: Yeah, basically, you have to include that in your design. Um, mm. So you always have to assume I think in, in distributed systems design you always have to assume that people act in their own best self-interest and nobody is um, yeah nobody does something for someone else, right Every, Everybody just does what's best for them. Mm. And, um, and you need to understand what these strategies are, these self-motivated, um, strategies and then you need to design, design the system that it's robust and it gives you the guarantees that you want even when people just do what's best for them. Hmm. And so I think, I think we can, so we we, we we could go into an example, right? So for example, why I would say so some people say that uh, there are different schools in MEV, which I actually don't agree with and I'll tell you why in a second. So there's this is a strawman, but this there's, there's the school of uh, democratizing access to MEV, which which just says that um, well we can't it's uh, it's like it's very difficult to to minimize MEV, so let's make sure that the the access to the best block is available to all validators, so mm-hmm. validators can stay simple and decentralized. And we we isolate the the centralization and complexity of block building into this new role the block builder right and then hmm. we just we try to make this role very competitive but we isolate it first and so this has already done a lot in order to curtail the the level of um, vertical integration that that you were talking about right and then the other alleged school says we have to minimize mev hmm. instead of democratizing it right democratizing is, is the wrong path and so um, I think these are not um, competitive at all. I think hmm. you should do both all the time, right? You have to minimize what you can, and then you have to democratize whatever is left. Because if you don't, then you will get centralization at the validator layer, which we don't want. But back to the original point. So there are ma- many uh, MEV designs that have been proposed in the past that are not incentive-compatible. For example, if you just ask validators to run an alternative uh, cl- um, client that orders the transactions in a way that doesn't maximize revenue to that validator, but that has some kind of that is somehow opinionated about what MeV can be extracted uh, or can't, right? Then um, whoever validator will use that, um, yes, they will have less MEV in their block, and they will arguably cause cause less harm to users. But using that client is not incentive compatible, and um, it just means that most validators will not do it. And um, and those validators who who do extract MEV, they will over time outperform and crowd out the validators who uh, who ignore the MEV, right? And so. Um, this shows that it's, it's not even, so even if you're willing to sacrifice something, uh, in order to protect users from MEV as well, that it's, it's not even in, it's not even, it's not in your own best self interest, but it's not even in this, in the best self interest of the system itself, because Mm. all of the solutions must be coherent at the system level. There's no individual player here who can solve this except for the user. And so, That's why we are so focused on educating the user to use solutions that that expose less MEV to begin with.
0: Yeah. So let's let's talk about because an enormous amount of discussion thus far in MEV has been kind of dedicated to the validator level, right, and trying to enshrine systems where we don't have centralization at the, the and that's kind of the proposer builder separation, right, which is on the roadmap for Ethereum but there's kind of this new force which i think is going to be emerging in the MEV value chain which is a little bit higher in the you know in the structure of the of the value chain which is kind of the user and wallet layer and that so we had seen you know previously kind of block space auctions happening at the the validator level and now there's talk about order flow auctions happening closer to the wallet and user layer can you talk a little bit about that force yeah, uh, I'd
1: love to. Um, so the idea behind order flow auctions is that users don't just send their transactions to the public mempool or even to uh, directly to a block builder mm. um, because they, by doing that, by sending it it straight away, they just they give away the MEV value of their transactions. Mm. If if we assume that you have a transaction to make, Mike, that has let's say $100 of MEV attached to it. For Mm. example, because your transaction takes an inefficient route through DeFi. It it trades on, instead of trading on all exchanges equally, it only trades on one exchange. And so it creates an arbitrage opportunity. Mm. Um, Then what the order flow auction does is it auctions off the right to execute your transaction or interact with it in some way that allows someone else to pluck the MEV that is attached to that transaction. Mm. And if you combine that with the principle of competition, then what you get is that you have different searchers um, competing for the right to pluck the MEV from your transaction and you get the same effect that happens when searchers compete for the same MEV opportunity with the block builder um what you get is they start to bid up the value of the opportunity they start to bid up uh, the right to take your transaction but instead to instead of paying it to the uh, block builder or the validator they pay it to you as the user Mm -hmm. and that allows you to reclaim the mev value of your own transactions
0: so you know what is a little bit exciting to me when I think about this and we'll talk about the role. regulation is going to play a role in these systems that we're talking about we'll get to that later but you know the the analogy has widely been used when describing MEV a payment for order flow right and that's a, you know to use the way this works in traditional tradfi kind of markets is brokerages sell their order flow to internalizers like a Citadel Securities right and that's why Robinhood has been able to offer zero trading fees to its largely retail user base, which is kind of dumb, dumb order flow is the uh, is the is the word that these people use. And if you actually take that to its extreme, right? Citadel Securities did something like some incredible number, like eighteen billion dollars or something like that in in profit last year. So what's kind of cool? What you're talking about, MEV redistribution to the user is the next logical step to that. Is actually to say, I'm going to compensate you and pay you actually to trade so not only can you trade for nothing but we're going to return some of that the fees that we got to you which is an exciting concept to me i think it's very interesting Mm -hmm. yeah it's
1: uh it is very interesting i i would say that i think on a common sense basis you you can never get paid to trade and so it's just, it's a very tricky yeah. idea because you, you you are paying something, otherwise they wouldn't give you that service, right? It's it's just mm-hmm. that you're paying in an invisible way. And I think so there's a lot of things. Um, oh I, I think payment for order flow has a very bad reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think the concept itself is sound, but um, I think what I dislike the most about it is basically the intransparency of uh, of how much you pay, right? What, what's actually the cost of um, getting a particular trade executed? And I think that's that's where we can do um, a lot better in, in DeFi.
0: Yeah, you know something that's funny about payment for order flow for me, because you're absolutely right, right? It, but to me, payment for order flow is almost a an example of fee preference, so. You know, when there, when you have financial markets, right, people need to, uh, there's infrastructure that supports that and the people that su- create the infrastructure need to extract fees in some way. So it used to be, you know, brokerages would charge you. It was actually a very honest business model in a way, but people didn't like it because there's this very seen, noticeable fee upfront, right, in the form of, it used to be much higher, but even with Fidelity, it used to be, you know, $5 or something and now it's now it's zero. Instead, people have opted for these invisible fees that you're kind of alluding to. And, you know, what Citadel does is when they get your order flow from Robinhood, a bunch of people buying GameStop, they don't trade directly against you, that'd be illegal. But they understand, and this is statistical arbitrage, which is happening in crypto, and I want to get your thoughts on is they understand that when people are buying GameStop, AMC is about to move. So the GameStop people don't get run over. But in a sense, the AMC people, that people that are about to buy AMC are going to get it at a worse price. So is that front running? I don't know. That's a weird philosophical question. Right now, I think the regulatory apparatus in the US says it isn't. But, you know, it's an interesting question to pose. Hmm.
1: It is a very interesting question. Um, I wouldn't consider that. I mean, I'm not sure if I would consider that front running. I mean, in a sense, you are using the information of one user to... Um, impact another user, but mm-hmm. I I'm also on the other hand not sure if if there is such a thing as the right to buy AMC at a stale price. Um yeah. <laughs> this is th- this reminds me of the the Flash Boys um, debate, right? Where all yeah. of the um, the old trading firms were complaining that um, they were now no longer able kind of to. To buy like stale market maker quotes on, on exchanges because they were starting to update so fast and so on yeah so i'm i'm not sure it's it's a very interesting topic for sure
0: i agree all right i, I want to keep moving through some of the ideas that that you and i want to explore so one other big question that i have for you and this is you know i, I know that flashbots is working on this in the form of Suave. But even that kind of MEV value chain that we laid out, there's actually kind of another dimension to it because Ethereum has adopted a modular scaling roadmap, right? So not, now not only do we have um, the main chain of Ethereum, but we have layer twos, right? In form of Arbitrum or Optimism or Base. And then the idea is we might have you know, either app-specific um, kind of layer threes that sit on top of those, those two. So each one of those systems, MEV is being generated. So one thing that I think we're pretty interested in exploring, and I'd love to get your thoughts on now, is how is MEV going to work in that world of uh, modular chains built on top of one another?
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing that, so first of all, I completely agree. So um, the roll-up centric uh, roadmap of Ethereum, and not not even just that, I think it converges. And you had this great season on kind of the modular stake in cosmos i think that the world of cosmos and the the world of ethereum they are converging in the middle Mm -hmm. um i think and i mean this is not a this is not a new opinion but i I think the ethereum um community has been better at executing um Mm -hmm. and distributing and so i think my my money would would still be on um you, the Ethereum ecosystem out, out competing the, the Cosmos ecosystem from here, but nonetheless, technologically speaking, they are converging. And I think um, in it will be very hard to say in the future if a particular project will be an Ethereum project or a Cosmos project just because of how the different layers can be mixed, uh, mixed and matched, right? So what does it mean for MEV? So I think... Intuitively speaking, the MEV accrues to the execution layer Mm. with the caveat that actually the MEV accrues to, like technically speaking, the MEV accrues to whoever gets to order the transactions. Mm. And so usually uh, the execution layer has some control over the ordering. So they, they can decide to forego that. They can opt into being what is called um a layer 1 sequenced rollup or a based rollup right um or opt into any kind of shared sequencing system and in that case the this alternate system that now sequences their transaction now accrues all of the mev there might of course because the the the, the execution layer has the ultimate right to decide who they want to give the right of sequencing um, who they want to outsource that to so they still have a lot of economic power over there and can can hopefully negotiate some form of profit share so that would be my that would be my first uh, comment on that uh, meV in the modular stack then how is it going to look i think one interesting takeaway is all of these layer two sequences right now are centralized mm. and all of these layer twos have roadmaps for decentralizing their sequencer but if you look at what the sequencer actually does it's it's a combi- it's basically the accumulation of what the block proposer and the block builder does in ethereum layer one so mm. it's almost like you're taking the you are turning back time right it's like we could go back into pre uh, pre MeV days on ethereum and so I think that shows you that these um, when when these layer two sequencers actually complete their um, decentralization roadmaps that that they have today, their job on MEV is far from done. I think that they will all have to struggle with the the same problems that Ethereum uh, was struggling with um, about uh, basically. There are being um, very inefficient MEV extraction. Um, the uh, the uh, MEV introduces a very big skill differential into block mm-hmm. building, um, and because, many, uh, be, because abstraction in the public mempool is very inefficient, you now have um, uh, a strong incentive to vertically integrate between searchers and, uh, and validators. And um, yeah, all of these things will be true on layer two as well. And so, yeah. lo- long story short, I think what we need on all of these layer twos is a form of PBS, um, meaning proposer builder separation. Meaning we, we need to um, we need to abstract out the the role of the block builder. And yeah, I think these are two points that I'd make uh, about the modular stack. And yeah, let me know if you want to dig in any, any deeper into I, that.
0: Yeah, I have more questions. Um, so some and some of this, I know is, the rules are kind of being written in real time, but you know, I think it's a good heuristic kind of rule of thumb that the MEV will accrue to the execution layer. That makes intuitive sense to me. I follow that. Here's my question to you right now. And I'm going to ask this question within the context of a single sequencer world where with the assumption that we're going to move to a decentralized sequencer set over time, but in the single sequencer world, right? Let's use the optimism model for now. So you basically get to bid to run the sequencer for a specific period of time and order the transactions. And if the profit you can extract ordering that transactions in that period of time exceeds what you have to pay, then you're in the money and everything's good. But the difference in between, you know, being, a, having the ability to order transactions at the base validator level at Ethereum is once you order those transactions, the block gets you, that's the settlement consensus layer, but this layer is still one layer up. So you could order those transactions, but then how do they get sent down? You know, how do you make sure that the, the way you've ordered the transactions will settle in that way so you can extract your profit?
1: Ah, Okay, so um, a sequencer today uh, in a layer two does four things, basically. Mm-hmm. So they um, receive transactions from a user, mm-hmm. they um, decide on some ordering of these transactions, and then they give the user some receipt of where they have been ordered. Mm. Um, So that's what we typically know as a pre-confirmation. And then number four, then they send the ordered batch of transactions onto the data availability layer. And that's what basically creates finality uh, from the perspective of the layer two. So from from the perspective of the layer one, these, um, you basically still need a validity proof of this batch uh, that it it leads to a, a valid state transition. Um, or you need some fraud-proof window to pass that basically proves the same thing, right? So it's this is, but this is about convincing the the layer one uh, bridge. So from the perspective of the layer two, once the um, once the the sequencer has posted the data availability batch or the the batch of transactions onto the data availability layer, the transaction is uh, is is practically final.
0: My next question for you here, and this is the last on this topic, and then I want to move on to some other topics, is you know, the amount of fees that validators can extract from, from MEV and then their other revenue sources, that's the security budget. They're securing the Ethereum network, right? So I see a couple of different competitive forces here that might impact the security budget of Ethereum. One, you have the emergence of order flow auctions on main chain. And then you also have these sequencers, right? Which extract their own MEV. And those I see as, am I correct in seeing that that's kind of a, taking away from the the revenue that validators can extract. And should that be a cause for concern for the security budget for Ethereum?
1: Um yes. So I think in the broadest sense, if we if we if we look at a um, a builder as if if you look kind of a sequencer and a builder as, as one and the same, then yes, any money that is extracted by any other participant in the supply chain that is not a, a validator that lowers the security budget of Ethereum. Mm. But I would say that MEV should not really be counted towards the security budget. At least Mm. that is how the Ethereum core developers think about it. So I think they see MEV as kind of an add-on, but it's not something that they want to enshrine. It's more something they, it's definitely something they want to minimize over time. And, um, and so Justin, I think it was Justin Drake who a couple of years ago intu- introduced this idea of the minimum viable security budget, or it may have been Vitalik, I'm not sure, but the idea is that, the uh, the minimum, the, the minimum necessary amount of security should always be paid from inflation. Mm. Um, nowadays we, it could also be paid through the base fee. So right now the base fee is basically set by the most recent degree of congestion in the network. So the network was very congested then the base fee goes up and if the network was not very congested, the base fee goes down, but you you could change this this base fee based on other factors as well. So for example, if uh, if the recent security budget was too low, then you could increase the fee and so on, right? Um, right. It's just not guaranteed that this will lead to more demand to transact. And so it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, But I don't think Ethereum will have the problem or the need to do that um, because Ethereum has a lot of holders and um, I think that um, Ethereum uh, can pay its security budget through inflation. Um, And yeah, that should be enough. It should not have to rely on MEV.
0: Yeah. And there is one topic that uh, I know our our first episode, we're going to be talking to Tarun, Chitra and Justin Drake. uh, And I know he wants to talk about MEV burn as well. Um, so we'll, we'll pick his brain on that. Hey guys, quick break from the show here. I want you to imagine something for me. Imagine swapping two stable coins on chain, paying $0 in gas, and instead getting a rebate of $2,000. This is something that's actually happened on chain to understand how I want to introduce and thank this season's sponsor, Rook zooming out for a second. The current state of affairs in MEV is billions of dollars so far have been extracted from users' pockets using MEV. Rook is coming in and saying, enough is enough. Blockchain should drive value to their users and the applications they use, it is time to leave the hobbyist era behind us if we want to move forward and we want to get this right. That's why Rook has built a custom blockchain settlement network, and it's one that gives you full control over the entire transaction lifecycle. Today, you can connect to an open source Rook node. The Rook protocol will automatically match, bundle, and auction your orders and transactions in seconds with zero gas overhead. Also, any MEV that's discoverable along the way will be returned to you, the user. Created as a collaboration between the industry's top mechanism designers and MEV engineers, Rook was built from the ground up to be scalable, safe, and programmable. You can get your own mempool, choose searchers and builders, and link your mempool with others to discover even more MEV you can define how the MEV is shared and delivered as well. And Rook can basically process anything from transactions to meta transactions and more. This is the way that blockchains basically should have been from day one. So if you're a user listening to this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your wallets, go to your favorite app, your node provider and say, hey, I want you to be working with these guys, Rook. I want the MEV that I create to be redistributed back to me. If you're a developer and you want to stay ahead of the game, the best way to do that is to follow them on Twitter. They are at Rook or even better yet, slide into their DMs. They are lightning responsive. They'll get you set up today. And if you do slide into those DMs, as always, please tell them that I sent you. I I wanna move on to, you know, I think many people are familiar at sort of a high level with the idea of what a searcher is and what a builder is. Um, and you did actually a great episode on on Common Core a number of years ago, I think, called the Interview with a Searcher, and we're going to be doing kind of a, a 2.0 <laughs> version of that with a couple of searchers in this season as well. But I would love it if you could just give for people like help formalize like what does the searcher landscape kind of look like today, and maybe if you could kind of touch on like searchers that optimize for long-tail MEV versus short-tail MEV. And if we could also touch on this idea of statistical arbitrage, kind of sex-to-dex arbitrage as well, that'd be great.
1: Yeah. So I think that there's a couple of ways to slice that pie. One of them is to look at the different forms of MEV that exist. Um, The biggest one by far is arbitrage. So Mm. arbitrage meaning there's some trade opportunity, And uh, if somebody makes that trade, then the opportunity disappears. For example, an asset is underpriced relative to some other asset or the same asset on a different exchange. Then if you buy that asset and sell it at the same time, then it kind of evens out in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so arbitrage, I believe, represents about 80% um, of the MEV. And I want to caveat that by saying that MEV in general is very, very hard to track. Uh, A lot of it is invisible. A lot of it is happening between Ethereum and a centralized exchange or Ethereum and some other exchange. And a lot of it is not easily recognized as MEV, basically. And um, that said, so there's arbitrage. Arbitrage is the biggest ticket, no matter how you slice it. Then you have sandwich attacks. Um, and that's when you, uh, that, that, that's when you basically buy an asset before someone else buys it and then you sell it right after them and they buy it at the, at the higher price and and, and, and you sell it back at the higher price, which makes you win something at the expense of the, the sandwiched person. And, uh, the last one, um, the, 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 last one is, is liquidation. So sometimes lending markets have to liquidate collateral, um, of someone and then they just auction that off. Well, have some mechanism basically for selling that and it's typically searchers who who do liquidate that. And so this is one of the examples where um, applications actually rely on searchers in order to do uh, an essential job for that application, which is to recapitalize um, their balance sheet. Um, So of these, um, I think that... um, So sandwiches have gone down over time a lot, actually. Um, That's for a couple of reasons. I think, for one, users became more sophisticated. Um, There's better tooling. Uh, So more users understand how to use DEX aggregator. More users understand how to use um, a private RPC endpoint like Flashbots Protect Mm. that allows you to send a transaction directly to a, a block builder without it ever touching the public mempool. But arguably, the biggest is just the uh, existence of Uniswap V three, which led to more concentrated liquidity around the current market price, um, and uh, and that basically made it made it possible to set tighter slippage limits and and generally have have less price impact in pools, and it made um, sandwiching just a lot less um, profitable. Hmm. Arbitrage is is an is an interesting one because. Uh a lot of arbitrage used to be atomic. And I think this is a theme that I wonder if the searchers we talk to will confirm this. But this is this has been on my MEV bingo card basically for a couple of years. Um which is a, which is basically that at- atomic transactions will disappear mm. except for when the markets are going really crazy. Mm. Uh, why then? Because then basically statistical arbitrage players um, turn off their models because they are afraid of getting blown up. And so wow. only the the most riskless trades basically get executed. Um, and that's when kind of time time for, for atomic <laughs> arbitrage to shine. But so the reason why uh, statistical arbitrage, and that means statistical arbitrage means it's, um, it's a form of, of trading where you take balance sheet risk. Mm-hmm. So you buy an asset and and there's a small period of time or there's some period of time, it may be very, very short where you have to hold the asset before you can sell it. Mm. So that is um, more risky, of course, because the asset can go down while you hold it, right? And so it's not atomic, it's not riskless. and um, But the reason why this form of trading will dominate nonetheless is because... Uh, if you don't have to do it atomically, if you can do it statistically, um, if you can internalize a trade, you can generally do the same trade cheaper. You can use less gas, you can bid a higher price, and you can ultimately win uh, the the right to execute that arbitrage with the block builder. And in any case, so any kind of trading like that will happen at the block builder level anyway. So it's. Already today, and this may be also interesting to mention, um, many of the top traders in DeFi are also block builders. So they don't even go the step of the search anymore and submit their, their trades as a searcher to different block builders. They may do that also because they want to maximize their inclusion guarantees. So they want to maximize the chance of being included on chain when they have a profitable trade. But they also want to be a block builder because that gives them much greater control over their trading strategy. Basically they can make the trade at the very last microsecond before they have to submit a block to a relay. They don't have to send it seconds earlier to a block builder who still has to simulate it and validate it and whatever, right? They can, they they also, they know the position of everybody else's transactions in the block. They can cancel their transactions, they can make new transactions, they can update them, they can sh- shuffle them around. It basically gives them much greater control over their, over how they execute their trading strategies. And so I think if I had to guess, then um, these are my three kind of observations about the current market structure. So arbitrage is king, uh, sandwiches will disappear over time as kind of we get more better privacy, et cetera, and, 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 uh, and better DEXs. And then um, statistical arbitrage will completely crowd out atomic arbitrage in any form of atomic trading. And then block builders and big trading firms, I think this role will merge. And this is something that we're already seeing.
0: Yeah. T- tons to dig into there. Um, I, I agree with all of that. And, and one thing that I, I wanted to get at with you is this, I, I think that idea of, The lag, right? This idea of warehousing risk, even for a very tiny number of seconds, is very key. You know, because before this season and started doing a bunch of research, you kind of heard a lot about this idea of cross-domain MEV. Sounds very exciting, right? But you know, when you kind of dig in, that's not really existent today. And I my understanding is part of the reason outside of sex to dex arbitrage. My understanding of the reason is if you look at like the block time for Ethereum is 12 seconds you look at something like Polygon, The block time is two seconds. So even if you had an arbitrage opened up, right, let's say you are three seconds into an Ethereum block and one second into a Polygon block, you could lock in the Polygon side of that arbitrage, but then you still have nine seconds, right, on the Ethereum block. And who's to say whether or not the validator executes on that second leg of the arbitrage and the spreads are wider on both of those chains than something like a sex anyway. So it's just not economical today to execute those arbitrages. Um, although maybe Suave fixes this in, in some way. Um, and you're going to school me half, <laughs> halfway through the season about why that might ultimately become possible. But I think that's an important idea to concept to highlight. And then the last thing that I wanted to get at, I think you're getting at another important point about latency and the importance of latency as well because these large, sophisticated trading firms do not want to warehouse risk for more. You know, they're not even operating on a second basis. They're operating on a microsecond basis than they need to. And you, you talked about flash boys before a little bit, and we know in TradFi, the role of latency is extremely important. And that's starting to rear its head again in crypto. So with that as kind of the context, can you dig into like, how do you think about latency? What is the role that it plays both in the view of the mempool, but then also in the strategy of these large, sophisticated builders.
1: Yeah, the role of latency, that's a very interesting one. So from the perspective of the searcher and the block builder, uh, I'm gonna treat them here as kind of the same bucket. So the more time you have, uh, the more you can slow down time, basically, the more valuable the block that you can build. For example, if you can, get more information about the world faster. So if you can read the chain and any other quote unquote chain, so the external world, you you can read all of these prices and price movements and, and whatnot and, um, and everything that's going on, the faster you can feed that into your model, the more time you have to kind of compute and search. That's where the name searcher comes from. Hmm. The more you can search for optimal or like or profitable trades, um, that you can do against the real world. Right. Um, and, uh, so, and then of course you want to, you want to maximize the efficiency of your algorithms itself. So the faster you can run them, the more you can parallelize and so on, um, the faster you you can compute and and, and search. And then you also have the lack of getting, uh, whatever trades you want to make to the block builder. Or if you're a block builder, then to the relay, through the relay, to the proposer, and so on. And um, you would like to do that as late as possible, because that, again, that maximizes your time and it minimizes the risk of something going wrong. And that also hints to, um, this going wrong also hints to kind of the value of um, cancellations. So you may submit your transaction, but then the price moves rapidly and you kind of you say, oh, I don't actually want to make this trade anymore. And so you have to cancel it. And that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that shows you why um, many trading firms actually opt to become block builders themselves, because then uh, any cancellation is instant because they're doing the computation and the block building locally. They, they don't have to go through around half the word to, to some other block builder who has to, well, you know, the, uh, the cancellation has to travel and they, and then they have to execute it and then they have to send you back a receipt and whatnot. Right. And so, um, yeah, the more this has, the more this can be compressed, of course, the better for you and you can see why searchers and builders, um, and proposers all have a very strong incentive to lower the latency between themselves as low as possible mm. because that just maximizes their collective payout. And that's a very, that is very, very dangerous basically, because, um, if this trend is, or if, if this incentive is, is sort of allowed to run wild, then what you get is at the limit, you get searchers who are co-located with block builders and you get block builders who are co-located with validators all in a very, Small geographical area. In the case of TreadFi, even within the same data center, right inside um, in, inside New, New Jersey or whatever, right or Again, Chicago, um, and uh, and and this might be okay in TreadFi because TreadFi is built on top of um, local jurisdictions, local law law law. Um, and so on anyway, but the ambition of crypto is that it's a system that is global and that is neutral. And when you have systems that rely on low latency, where it's better to be to have a lower latency towards other actors than to have a higher latency, and so you can never completely avoid this, but where it just pays a lot to have a low latency to other actors, then you will always erode um, this geographical decentralization and this neutrality over time, because you basically disincentivize being somewhere in the world that's not close to everybody else. Mm. And this is something that I predict um, will be a, become a bigger topic uh, in the next year of talking about MEV and uh, as usual, Phil Dayan. Um, so he's the uh, he's the one of the co-founders of, of Flashbots, who, who wrote the original um, Flashbots 2.0 paper that um, that that first talked about MEV. Uh, he recently put out a a post about latency and geographic uh, decentralization, where, where he laid out this argument uh, in much greater detail. So I would recommend everybody to to check that out because it's really important. Um, but what this means basically is that. In the systems that we build, we need to make sure that they are not sensitive to latency. Otherwise, we will get this. We will just recreate Trezvy. We will recreate the same latency games, and we will not. We will basically fail in building decentralized blockchain systems. Instead, we have to build systems that are more tolerant to to higher latency and who, to actors who who have a higher latency, and don't punish these actors for being. At a different part of the world um because otherwise you will get
0: what you wish for and that would be not good for crypto Hmm. i've got one one question for you here before we move on to our next topic here which is i total i i I generally agree um i agree with you on that front but i think also you know this this kind of hits into it there's fierce debate right across where you would call kind of like the mev maximalization corner of crypto and then the fair ordering uh, order of uh, corner of crypto and there's no sort of Shangri La, you know, when it comes to this sort of thing. So if you remove latency as a vector of competition for how MEV is extracted, what is the other side of that coin? If you had to steal it? do you want me to steal man fair ordering, or do you want me to steal mm-hmm. man the other side to fair ordering? What I heard from that argument basically is like we we can't be opt- we can't allow uh, latency to be the deter- the determining factor in how MEV gets extracted so what is the you know if you push down the latency competition vector what is the other competition vector that rises up ah uh-huh. so what competition
1: vector rises up when you minimize latency mm-hmm. is price and so because you turn you turn basically a latency auction into a into a price auction and you force the parties to compete on on who pays the most in order mm-hmm. to fill a certain opportunity and price is more Compatible with geographical decentralization than latency. And so that is one big reason. Um, there are other reasons as well. So auctions are generally more fair and more welfare maximizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, uh, welfare maximizing meaning. So the, this, the party who wants the item the most, uh, are more likely to get it. Um, and then they are also more efficient in the sense that, uh, they maximize revenue for the seller. Uh, Off block space, and so in 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 a market where the the well data or the sequencer uh, can pick their own ordering, then they would always prefer to do an auction because that actually maximizes the revenue that they can get. I would no so, and this is maybe where we build a bridge to the modular stack again. So I can mm-hmm. totally understand the appeal of um, of fair ordering protocols. Um, I, they, they just feel more fair. There are, uh, it's sort of very natural that as a human, you, you think, well, I was f- like, my transaction should be ordered in the order that it was received. Right. And, um, it's only at the limit that it starts to break down, um, when searchers start to compete and basically it leads to this geographical decentralization, but that's the same argument as why users love Robinhood. It's basically the good is very visible and the bad is very invisible to them. Mm. And it's a kind of systemic effect that doesn't affect them personally. It only affects the guarantees of the system as a whole. But that said, there are some nice properties that um, fair ordering protocols have that options that don't have. And I, I would say the biggest one, the biggest one is it's much easier to make a fair ordering protocol private than to make an auction private. So if you have a list of encrypted transactions, then you can only reveal um, the timestamp when the transaction was received. Uh, and you can come to consensus on that in a, in a decentralized network. Um, and, and then you can order these transactions and you can later decrypt them, and then you have your ordering. But it is a much harder problem to take the same list of encrypted transactions and compute the output of an efficient auction mm. where you say the transaction that pays the most goes at the top, but you also want to uh, minimize any conflicts between them, right? Because in, um, in this type of system, a lot of transactions will basically conflict with each other, right? And so this is true in both cases. Um, but at the limit, it's, it is easier to, to make a fair ordering protocol private than it is to make an auction private. And so that's my personal statement man of, mm. of fair, fair, uh, ordering protocols. Mm.
0: I think it'll be interesting to see because, you know, we've got the two, maybe biggest brand kind of layer twos on Ethereum have very different approaches to MEV between optimism and Arbitrum. So it'll be fun to see how that kind of plays out in practice.
1: Um, yeah and, and StarkNet, i i don't think has commented at all yet right on on what kind of uh ordering preference they would prefer at least that
0: that i'm aware of no no me either um and and i mean this decision is will be made i think in real time there's going to be i mean we're recording this on the day i think Zk sync has gone live so congratulations but you know there's going a polygon is launching their their zk network as well so i think this this decision will be made in real time we'll probably see the pros and cons play out and it'll be very interesting um w- one other uh so a lot of this season is going to be focused on mev on ethereum but we also have a couple ed- ed episodes dedicated we've got a mev on solana episode and an mev on cosmos episode uh, now this is The cosmos one's a little near and dear to my heart we the whole last season was pretty much focused on cosmos and we did an mev episode but you know i'd be curious you know as someone who's spent a lot of time like very close to the metal or kind of in the guts of ethereum you know consensus and how mev dynamics are playing out on ethereum i'd be curious you know what you're interested in or kind of hoping to get out of the solana and cosmos episodes
1: yeah for solana i think um solana if I'm not totally mistaken, I think in many ways it, it it can be a case study for why you shouldn't build low latency blockchains. Um, um, so it's I, I I kind I see it almost more as as an anti example in that sense. Mm. So um, it I think we will talk about the centralizing effect of of low latency and what this does to a valid set and what this does to vertical integration between. Um, block builders and uh, and validators, um, and it's maybe not a surprise. I think that the uh, block builders, if I'm not totally mistaken, at least one of two block builders on Solana is also um, operating a, a liquid staking protocol. Um, because just by running um, the actual validators and the builder in the same place, they just have a big and the big a big advantage over others, right? then i think we will talk about uh well fee market design which is i mean that's tangentially related to mev i, I guess but it, it shows that if you don't have a robust um mempool and, and fee market design and um then you get uh basically a lot of spam a lot of failed transactions i saw an example uh the other day that 50 percent or more of solana transactions actually failed arbitrage transactions which is so insane if you think about
0: it. 58%. Yeah.
1: And then for Cosmos, I think Cosmos and MEV is super fun. I, I listened to all of the episodes that, that you did on MEV and Cosmos. I know m- most of the people I'm an investor in, um, Osmosis, uh, because I think they are doing something very interesting. Um, I know the guys from Skip very well. I, I think their approach to on chain block building and on chain searching, I think that's something new that we haven't seen before and then um uh, i think there's a and penumbra to uh two projects that are at least kind of intellectually quite close to swath in the sense that they have this so they both have privacy as a big part of their project and they have this they want to move users from making regular executable transactions to having kind of intent based uh transaction framework and um, this is something that we also think a lot about, and that I am personally very bullish on. And so I'm, I, I'm really looking forward to picking these guys' minds and yeah, diving into some of the unique MEV ideas they have over in Cosmos.
0: Me as well. Yeah, it, you know, it's funny to to hear Miles laid out in that season uh, an articulation of the perfect MEV solution, with two of which are going to seem they apply perfectly to Ethereum, but one is different. And one is the three prongs of a perfect MEV solution from his perspective was one, avoid centralization at the validator level, check for Ethereum, Uh, minimizes harmful forms of MEV like sandwiches, I think check for Ethereum. But then the third prong is, this is a little bit uh, Osmosis specific, which is you have a way to return MEV to the protocol. So Osmosis has a proto-Ref module, which is a pretty exciting experiment. I think there is a, Difference in Ethereum, which is uh, returning of MEV to the user. Um, So it's, there's, you know, the cool thing about Cosmos that I love doing that season is, you know, it's very, each, there are very different opinions there and they kind of think about the world in a different way. And like Osmosis has a very opinionated approach to MEV. And because they're their own sovereign chain, they can do that. And it doesn't necessarily perfectly align with the rest of the Cosmos ecosystem, which is just cool. It's a diversity of ideas and opinions.
1: Yeah, and I'm. Um, I think something that we should dig into when we talk to them is how much of this, how how much of their opinionated nature can they retain when they actually start outsourcing um, their security needs, right? Because the big drawback in uh, in Cosmos right now is all of these chains have their own validator um, well sets, and um, mm-hmm. so they have this idea of mesh security. They have this idea of uh, the interchain security that you can. Uh, you can outsource your sequencing to to the Cosmos Hub. And as that catches on, how can they keep their own uh, ordering and mempool policies while also getting the security from another blockchain? I think, is there a compromise
0: there? That would be very interesting for me uh, to know. I agree. I agree. Um, so the, the last topic that I want to get your opinion on, and frankly, this is one that we might not have an answer to, but is is this, uh, is the idea of regulation. So right now, kind of the big theme in crypto is regulation finally colliding with our sector in a big way, especially within the context of the United States, right? The SEC has taken a very sort of opinionated stance and approach. And there's probably, it's only a matter of time, bless you, before that comes to MEV as well. And, you know, it has struck me that sometimes we talk about mev as this like hey we all as a community need to make a decision about the way that this should work but the united states and our regulatory apparatus has its own opinion right about how value um, you know should be trans- uh you know transmitted in financial systems and a very specific definition of what best execution means for instance and you know to put my own opinion forth here i think a situation where users are front run or sandwiched, but some amount of MEV is passed back to them would not fit that, you know, their specific definition of best execution today. So let me just pose that to you. It's first of all, do you agree with that statement? And second of all, what, how do you think regulation kind of bumps into MEV? I think that's a great question. And we have to
1: caveat this. I mean, it's all speculation, right? Yes, I'm not talking absolutely. to any regulators. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think if you zoom out far enough, then U.S. financial regulation and crypto, or at least the consumer protection part of it, is actually very, very aligned. Mm. Because um, what crypto, at the end of the day, is all about is creating more fair and equitable markets for users, where there are fewer central parties who can exploit them in some shape or form. And you sometimes have to make compromises in the short to medium term. Uh, so our systems today, they fall short of that. And not just because the system is poorly designed, it's m- more so that the applications on top of it are poorly designed. And this in turn may be kind of, th- this may be a result of like lack of privacy, lack of, of throughput, etc. Right right? Um, but uh, I think the silver lining is that you know the execution that users can get on public blockchains is getting better and better every year so if you if you just compare um, kind of the execution quality of users I would love to see that charted on a graph and I think it's it's going up you know parabolically and I think it'll continue to go up as we learn to build better exchanges and as we learn to make the the base layer more MEV resistant, et cetera. Nonetheless, so I would also agree that, yes, sort of the crypto does not currently fit into any frameworks of uh, what best execution means in traditional finance. I think that's okay. I think that um, definitions can change. And I also think regulators are pragmatic and use a kind of, I think they apply their force where it's the most necessary, except mm. if they get some kind of, of course, orders from above that are more political or of kind of national <laughs> security interest. Um, and the, the, the third point would be that what we need to build our systems in a way that they are just not subject to the regulation of a single party. Because if a single regulatory regime can make the rules in crypto, then crypto just as a concept has just failed. And that's why I'm so anti-latency minimization and so on as well, because this just creates the conditions for crypto to centralize in a single geographical regime. And this is something that we have to avoid. We need to make it so that, that crypto has power centers in the US, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in China, and so on, and uh, I think that's when crypto re- reaches its its maximum um, resilience, and the and no single regulator can come along and kind of enforce its own preferences or utility function on the system as a whole. They, they maybe they can say, well, as a US validator, here's what you can and can't do, right? But this will only have a small effect on the system as a whole, because the other validators might still do what they want, right? And so I think in order to build a system that is truly robust, then you you just need uh, participants from many jurisdictions and you need a way for their own utility functions to kind of make it into this hot pot of utility functions that, that creates the the total guarantees of the system.
0: And I think, you know, I think a fair caveat to say is some of the subject matter that we cover in this season is going to be discussing what's currently happen, happening, but some of it is necessarily going to be speculating a little bit about how things are going to play out in the future. Um, and so we'll we'll do our best to caveat when that's the case. But um, I I think we covered all the major topics that we're going to be getting into. I think this is going to be uh, especially if you're a nerd around mev or how blockchain systems work this is going to be a wildly fun season so yeah i'm really looking forward to to digging into it and we've got a great first episode lined up with justin and and tarun so we'll, we'll dig into it more then yeah sounds great i look forward to that episode as well all right my friend i'll talk to you soon